Acts chapter 16, verse number 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners that were surrounding them in other cells heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. That sounds miraculous to me. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then the jailer called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. We'll stop there for the moment. We will go on a little later. I wonder if science has ever studied the imagination. Probably has, to some degree. I have some questions. Do animals have imaginations? Or is it an ability for humans only? Is it a divine gift? Is it one of the talents that the Lord has given to us? In other words, some people have more imagination than others. Why do some people have useful imaginations? Useful imaginations. Is it somehow related to artistic talent? When refined, does imagination and talent go together? If it is a gift of God, it appears to me to have been damaged by the curse for our sin. By that I mean, it, it appears to have as many problems related to it as blessings related to it. A case in point was brought up in our lesson last week entitled Soul Winning Anxiety. This is another in the anxiety area. Proverbs 22.13 says, A slothful man saith, There is a lion without I shall be slain in the streets. Undoubtedly, many lazy, slothful people know that there isn't a lion out there, but they use that argument to keep themselves from their responsibilities. But on the other hand, there may be timid souls who imagine there really are lions out there, or rapists, or muggers, or terrible viruses. I can't go out there. I better stay home. While it may or may not be true, their overactive minds invent a potential problem to keep them from doing what they ought to be doing. Every Christian has been called to be a witness to God's grace. Not everyone is called to pastor a church, to travel to a foreign country, to preach to thousands of people. But like someone who is called by a judge or a lawyer in a court case, we have been summoned to testify to what we know 
about salvation. Thirty-five years ago, I was called to be a witness in a court case down in uh, uh, Deming, New Mexico. And I have to admit that I was somewhat uh, anxious about it. It was no big deal. There was no murder trial or anything like that. Uh, I was just to testify on the character of a certain man. But I have to admit that I was a bit anxious. But when we are prepared to tell the truth, for what do we need to be anxious? The truth is the truth. Witnessing to a lost soul, however, is a little different than answering lawyers' questions. We are expected to take the initiative. We may be asking the questions. Perhaps we should be. And then again, the person to whom we are witnessing, he may have questions himself. And in the light of that responsibility, a great many potential personal evangelists are kept from their duty because of their imaginations. One of my friends asked me about this doctrine that I don't understand very well. What if he asked me about this? What should I say? What could I ask him? What if I say something that is unacceptable to him and he turns away in anger never to listen to the gospel again? Will I be responsible for the the lost eternal state of this man because I blew it as an evangelist? Of course not. He's lost because he's lost. But nevertheless, Christians can imagine that sort of thing. I can do damage to this person if I don't do it correctly. In order to relieve a bit of our natural anxiety, for the next lesson or two or three, I'm going to address some specific groups of people offering scriptures and suggestions for us to keep in our minds as we talk to these people about the Lord. The more familiar we, we are with the, and I hate to use the word, but I couldn't come up with another one, the mechanics of soul winning, the easier it should become and the less uh, influence our imaginations may produce. Let's start with the Philippian jailer. Here is someone who yearned to be saved. Not everybody does. Almost nobody does. But every once in a while, there will be someone. Pray that the Lord will place before us people whom he has already prepared. People who are anxious to be saved. First, we need to determine whether or not his desire is genuine. In the case of this jailer, I assume that he heard the gospel to some extent. Maybe it was while he was uh, uh, putting chains on the arms or the, the feet of the apostles. Maybe he heard their testimony at that point in time. Maybe he heard their singing, their praising of God. Maybe he could hear their prayers that were referred to in here. Perhaps he heard the witnessing that they were sharing with other prisoners in related cells. Somehow, he heard a little bit about the gospel. And when the earthquake struck, 
The Holy Spirit brought this man to his knees in fear for his soul. And I realized when he said, what must I do to be saved? We could be talking about a number of things, but let's just assume that he was wondering how to be saved. He was brought to that point by the Lord. It may be that your friend wants to be saved from his drug addiction. He may be desirous to be saved from his propensity to abuse his wife. He may be suffering from some disease and he yearns for deliverance. Or perhaps the groundwork has been done and he simply wants to become a child of God. This is a very special case. Whatever it is, perhaps we should give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that his desire is genuine. He wants to be saved. It still behooves us to remind him that he is a sinner. Yes. This is where the handout comes into play. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.6 All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way in contrast to God's way. Isaiah 64, 6. We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth of God is not in us. There are a great many other verses, but it's usually best not to bury our friend in more scriptures than are necessary. If he's willing to admit that uh, uh, Romans 3.23 speaks of him, then maybe we should just stop right there and move on. But if he needs more proof, more scriptures, give him more scriptures. Uh, take him to one or two of these. Ask him to read them out loud. Then ask him if he understands. It's pretty simple language. Anybody could understand the words. Do you understand these things? Do you understand the meaning of the verse? And ask him if he agrees with, God, with what God is telling him in this verse. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is that you? It is. Okay, if he willingly admits to his sin, show him that Jesus, the Son of God, took away our sin. You can talk about the crucifixion if you like. You can talk about what brought Christ to the cross. But don't go into great depths. In fact, this is a general rule, if you like, when it comes to witnessing. Keep it simple. Even if your friend is a theologian of some sort, a priest in some religion out there, treat him as if he's an uneducated child because the Word of God says that he is. He knows nothing if it hasn't been taught to him by the Holy Spirit. He is. If he really wants to be saved... Well, the simple facts 
of the gospel should be sufficient. Another general rule is to avoid those questions which lead away from the point. That's a very good question. Let's table it for a minute until we finish this. And nine times out of ten, eight times out of ten, those questions will kind of evaporate by the time you get done with your presentation of the gospel. Or at least they won't be pertinent anymore. You might finish that verse from Isaiah 53.6. Perhaps that's the one you should start with saying, We're all sinners. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you understand that there's a sense in which you are lost? How do you find your way to heaven? Ask him, who is the person who is being described in the last part of the verse? Well, it's Christ Jesus. If he's not sure about that, then take him to the rest of the context of Isaiah 53. We're talking about the Lord Jesus here. Upon whom has the Father laid your sin? Well, this is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of you and me. Your sin has been laid upon Christ. Go over it again and again until he sees it. Until he understands this is what the scripture says. He may not believe it. But if he really wants to be saved, then he's going to strive to believe it. This is what the Bible says. The Lord hath laid on this person my sin. Your sin. Go over it until he sees it. Salvation is possible. Only because Christ bore our sin, carried our sin. The Philippian jailer was miserable to the point of suicide because at that point, having heard what he heard, whatever it was, and having experienced the power of God, the weight of sin was on him. It was crushing him. He was miserable. He was ready to kill himself. But with Paul's help, he was able to see that Christ took up his burden and carried it away. That's what salvation is all about. You are a lost sinner. You are a sheep going astray. But Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. You are a sinner. He came to bear our sins away. Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. God's law says that we are sinners. And intrinsically we know that whether we want to admit it or not. We're all a bunch of sinners. We are not only sinners, but we are cursed by God's law. We are condemned to eternal death. 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse that the law has placed on us, being made a curse for us. Christ willingly became a curse on our behalf that we might be delivered, that we might be redeemed from that curse. He became a curse that we might be delivered from that curse. Go over the verse again and again if necessary until your friend can begin to understand it at least in a a, a mental sort of way. Under what were we cursed? God's law. Our sin because of God's law. What does the curse ultimately mean? Eternal death. We don't have that scripture right here, but we're coming to it. Who has delivered us from the burden of the law? How did he do that? Christ delivered us. How? By becoming a curse on our behalf for us. What is it to redeem something? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. To redeem something is to buy it back. Your gold watch has been pawned. How do you get it back? By redeeming it with funds in this case. But the Lord has redeemed us by becoming a curse for us and dying in our place. You can bring up the blood if you like at this point. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we, who are sinners, might be made the righteousness of God in him. Have your friend read that verse. Who has been made sin for us? Christ has been made sin for us. That is the same thing as he was made a curse for us. He became cursed because he bore our sins upon his own body on the tree. If God has done something, can anyone undo it? For he, speaking of God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. If God has determined that this is going to take place, then who's going to undo it? Who can stop it? If you were going to put yourself into this verse, how would it read? For God was made, has made Christ Jesus to be sin for me. That I might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Over time and with experience... You may be able to see your friend doesn't need any more scriptures than Isaiah 53, 6. But there are plenty of them out there. We have a few just here. 
if he's willing to see these things, acknowledge these things, then next show him that Christ died and was buried and rose again to complete God's salvation. Not only did God the Father decree that Christ's sacrifice for sin would be sufficient, he raised Christ from the dead to complete and prove its completion. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Old Testament prophecies, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Why did Christ die? For our sins. He did not die for himself. We've already seen that he was without sin. He did not die for himself. Is he still dead? No. He was raised from death. Raised from the dead. Hebrews 7.25 Wherefore, he, Christ, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. If your friend doesn't see that this is speaking of Christ, take him to the context once again. What is Christ doing right now? He's making intercession for those he saved. What does that mean, intercession? It means he's stepping between them and the Father, if you like, pleading for them. Because he is interceding for us, what is he able to do for those who come to God through him? He's able to save them to the uttermost. What does uttermost mean? It's not a word we use very often, but it's not all that difficult. It means as far as the imagination can take you. He saves them to the uttermost. Help your friend to understand that Jesus died, but he is now alive and will be alive forever because the Lord raised him from the dead and that he's there to intercede on our behalf. If the devil came along and accused us, there is Christ. If we accuse ourselves, if a new sin pops up in our life, there is Christ pleading his blood. Does he have to plead to the Father? Essentially not. But we can look at it in that way. Not only did he deliver us from the punishment of our sins, not only did he deliver us from the curse of our sins, but there he is to keep sin and sin's punishment 
at bay, delivering us from sin and also from the power of sin. 1 Peter 1.5 Speaking of people who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The last time is that uttermost way out there. Keeping in mind the other scriptures, who are the people who are kept by the power of God? Believers who are kept by the power of God through faith. To what and from what are they being kept? They're kept from the, per- from the curse. They are kept unto God's righteousness. How are they kept? By the power of God. Believe it. Through faith. Believe it. What does that mean? Through faith. It's to trust the statement. These verses suggest there is nothing else necessary in order to be kept by the power of God. Just believe Him. Not only is Christ our Savior interceding for us, but He must be, at the same time, our Lord. This person who yearns to be saved from his sin should be ready to see Christ as Lord as well as Savior. There were people on the day of Pentecost who were ready to be saved. They cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts 2.37 That question came immediately after Peter declared, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified both Lord and Christ. Two things, Lord and Savior, if you like. To what position has God raised His Son Jesus? To be Lord and Christ. You may yearn to be forgiven and delivered from your sins, but are you willing to have Christ be your Lord? There are some evangelists who say this is not important. I think it is. Yes, it is. Romans 10.9 If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Let's say that Christ tells your heart to give up that, that sin that you did not mention to your evangelist. You know that you shouldn't do that anymore. But you're unwilling to give it up. You want to keep that sin for which Jesus died. You want to keep that sin which has cursed you under the law. And yet you want to be forgiven. 
doesn't sound like a, a complete circle, shall we say. The whole procedure's not there. If you refuse to sur surrender to Jesus as your Lord, according to this verse, if we're going nowhere else, will God save you and forgive you? If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, then thou shalt be saved. Is Christ Lord as well as Christ? If your friend is still with you at this point, agreeing with what you are teaching him, Show him that to make Je how to make Jesus, and I put this in quotations there on that sheet. I think I did. How to make Jesus his personal Savior. It's not enough to believe that Jesus died for sin in a general way. What about you personally? John 1.12 But as many as received him... To them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This is talking about Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Take him to the context if you need to. Who are the people who are made children of God? According to this verse, it is those that receive him. And how does this verse explain what it is to receive Christ? Those that believe on his name. What's another way to say believe on Christ? It is to trust him. To cling to him. To rely on him. We need to trust that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to meet our sinful needs. We need to trust that God will keep his promises. Believe. Trust him. But as many as received him, believing on his name, to them gave he power to become the children of God. Romans 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Who may have everlasting life, according to the verse? Those that believe on him. What is it to believe in or on Christ? It is to put my dependence, my trust, my reliance on him. Go back to what Paul told the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Can we believe the testimony of the Lord? Certainly we can. The testimony of the word of God? We have no other place to turn. Believe it. Do you at this moment trust Christ to deliver you from your sins? Maybe I should say, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you have noticed that I have said nothing about repentance. It's because of our subject. 
the friend to whom we are witnessing. He's like the Philippian jailer. He's anxious to be saved. Paul didn't say anything to the jailer about repentance because he could see it in his eyes. He could see it in his demeanor. If you have any doubts about the genuineness of your friend's desire, don't hesitate to talk to him about repentance. Luke 13, 2 and 3, Jesus answering said to this group of people, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Acts 3.19 Repent, therefore, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 17.30 And the time of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Do you know what it is to repent? It is to have a change of heart and mind. In this case, it's a complete change of mind in regard to your sin and God's relationship to you. Unless we agree with God about our sinful condition, Christ will not save us. We must understand the reason that we need salvation. Assuming this person really wants to be saved, maybe he's already got that. There are two more things which are so intricately linked to salvation that they should be a part of our gospel presentation. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, we've just been talking about these things, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Are you willing to tell the world that you are a Christian? Are you willing to tell your family that you are now looking at Christ differently than you did and differently than perhaps they do? Will you tell your friends that you will no longer go with them to their sinful activities while still trying to be their friend? If there isn't a willingness to testify of your new faith in Christ, then there's reason to doubt the genuineness of your faith and salvation because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Confess. A second related item is closely associated with confess. And that is baptism. When the Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to to be saved? And Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. That night, a few minutes later, he was baptized. He and all his. Straightway. Acts 16.33. What does the word straightway mean? There's another one that we only find in the Bible. Or... We don't use anyway. It essentially means immediately. 
The man's baptism was one of the ways in which that new believer confessed that Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior. Acts 2.38 Now when the people of Israel on the day of Pentecost heard this, they were pricked in their heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We're saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Baptism is a testimony of that. In Acts 8, the evangelist Philip gave the gospel to another man, another man who is yearning to be saved. The Lord had prepared his heart. Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto the Ethiopian eunuch Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There were probably other things involved in that. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. They both went, they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Are you willing to be baptized as a testimony of your faith in Christ Jesus? If he says that he is willing to be baptized, then perhaps one more point. Show him how to have assurance of his salvation. He needs to be able to say, I know that I am saved. I know that I have eternal life. <clears throat> there are lots of scriptures. John 3.36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. In contrast to that, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God abideth on him. What do you suppose is meant by eternal life? It never ends. Forgiveness of sins and peace with God forever. This verse describes someone who is sure of eternal life. And who is he? He that believeth on the Son. Do you know who spoke these words? Well, it appears to be the Lord Jesus. Does Christ know what he's talking about? What if the devil comes along and tries to convince you you're not saved because you're not worthy? Well, my Bible says that Jesus gave me eternal life. It's not going away. <coughs> what did Jesus say? John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Who spoke these words? Christ Jesus. Did Christ know what he was talking about? Of course. Can the person to whom Christ has given eternal life ever be eternally lost? He cannot. Christ does not fail. 
if you have brought your friend through these points, he's willing to be baptized, he expresses uh, faith in Christ, he demonstrates some sort of repentance, then put your arm around him and say, I'll pick you up at uh, 9.30 on Sunday morning and we'll go to church together. You need to grow in the things of the Lord. There are many other scriptures. This is just a simple outline. I thank you for your attention.